Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy and cool autumn day here in the capital is Derek Timms. Derek is a director at DT Seals, a leading distributor of quality sealing products and bearings based in Birmingham, West Midlands. Uh, Derek, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves alongside me, Derek. And uh, normally at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate we approach um, the subject matter from that angle because it's proven to be such a significant challenge, this pandemic, for leaders within all walks of life. But for you and your business, to what extent has it actually changed things? Well, initially, when... uh when the situation before uh, the Prime Minister announced the lockdown, we started to make efforts in the, in the business to make sure that we, what we decided to do, we have six members of staff here and three people worked as one core and three people were going to work as another core. So we kept the, them away from each other. We were going to get them coming in then working one week, have a week off while the other three people came in to keep us away from contact of being able to catch the disease. Then, of course, lockdown broke out um, and we then had a situation where one one member of staff uh, needed to then stay away for 12 weeks because his, his uh, son has got muscular dystrophy and uh, we couldn't afford for him to get uh, COVID. So we put him on furlough. Uh, we put then we put two other members of staff on on furlough. Uh, one member of staff stayed in uh, to, at home uh, to answer the phones, and the other two worked in the office. One worked in the office, part answering phones and looking after the trade counter, and the other one worked in the stores packing up the goods. And that's how we ran then for the next twelve weeks. And just thinking about um, how long we could be in this sort of period of stasis for almost, um, what do you envision with that side of things? Because even a vaccine, if one does come about, and of course, fingers crossed, that does happen, it's not necessarily going to work as a magic bullet and going to restore everything as it was, is it? Because it's going to take some time for consumer confidence to actually return. Well, in our business, we, we we started to bring people back uh, from furlough in July, June in June time, we've now got everyone working uh, full time, um, and looking forward to the future, the business suffered. We we had sort of a twenty five thirty percent drop in turnover, but because of furlough, we were able to keep our head above water. The government assistance that we've had financially has helped us tremendously. What with the local council grant that we got and the ability to borrow £50,000 interest-free also helped us. And then looking forward, what we decided that we would basically write off these six months as far as uh, the growth of the business was concerned. And we've tried now to look at each month as it comes 
and saying, can we increase the turnover that we did last month over this month? And October, we started to see that happen to an extent that we are probably be about 12 to 15% down on our turnover as it was um, 12 months ago. Um, but it's, um, it's, as a company, we are, we are looking to, to carry on that growth. Uh, most of our customers are buying from us, but they're just not buying as much as they used to buy. And um, it's, uh, but looking forward to the, over the next six to 12 months, I suppose it's looking like a, a crystal ball, but uh, sales is always a crystal ball situation. But I think that certainly from what the government are trying to do, we seem to be moving in the right direction. Uh, as far as our business is concerned. And I think that the the situation now is that if we can maintain things over the next two or three months and get into the new year um, in the same situation as we are now and and then looking for the next 12 months, I would like to think that by the end of 2021, we're at the level we were at the beginning of 2020. So in a way, we'll have partly written off two years, provided we don't make a loss and we can at least break even. Um, I think we'll have, we will have done well. And mm. in general terms, that's the way we, we seem to be looking is to make sure that we stay out, keep our heads above the water um, and uh, look for growth where, it, where, it, where, it, where we can grow. Our biggest problem, like everyone else, you can't go and visit customers. Mm. And so you can't even go looking at existing customers to see them. A lot of phone work. Um, but we can't go looking for new business because nobody will want to see you at the moment. So that's that's the area. So the, the quicker we get the vaccine and the quicker we can get out knocking on doors, the, the easier it will be for us to maintain the the growth that we are seeing at the moment. And um, as you're, of course, trying to get back to sort of pre-pandemic levels in that sense, um, as reflecting on what's gone on over the uh, the last few months, is there anything you can say that you've learned from this period of crisis management that you're going to take forward as a positive that will ultimately help you in trying to get to that point? I think um, I think one of the things that we have we have noticed that when when the staff started to come in from back off furlough, um, we have seen a different. Uh, uh, um, I suppose they they have felt um, more protective of their own jobs, um, and they've suddenly realised that a job that they thought six months ago was a dead certain, no problem, providing they worked hard job going forward, is now a situation where um, they realise that they may have to put that extra shift in or that extra bit of work to maintain the business that we've got. And the workers seemed, and, and everyone in the staff seemed to have come back with a, a, a frame of mind of let's, can we all work together to move this business forward rather than uh, workers, office staff and management. And I know we're only a small company, but uh, and we do try and work together. But in general terms, they are working along the lines of trying to let's how can we work together is there any way that we can work to 
keep this business afloat and keep their job secure. I think they're all very, very grateful that they've still got a job after six months of the uh, of COVID-19. Mm. I think it, that's very much summed up by the phrase, you learn more about yourself and other people in times of adversity than you do when things are going well. And it seems from your experience, Derek, that everybody around you has really stepped up, which is very positive. Um yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, it's it's very. I mean, we've we've learned situations to do with staff, and we've 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 seen the the situation in in the days when they when they were not at work. We kept in contact with them on a regular basis mm. um, to let them know where we were turnover wise, where we were with looking at possibly bringing them back, and is it possible. You know, they were all paid 100%, 80% obviously from the government. We still paid the balance of 20%. So nobody lost that. Uh, in some cases, it would be like having a three-month holiday, although you couldn't go anywhere. But they, I think they were all appreciative that we tried wherever possible that they could still maintain their lifestyle that they were living with without it affecting the business. Uh, and... So when they've come back, they've appreciated the fact that we seem to have gone the extra mile to help them, uh, keep them informed. We brought them back on a gradual basis, part-time, and then we've now brought them back all full-time. And uh, that, that has been the, the, the big thing. Is being we, We've tried to be as management response, responsible people, but I think what, what has pleased us is that the staff themselves have felt that they are now responsible to try to help us build the business forward because they appreciate, they know that the turnover is down and they know that we're not as profitable this year as we were last year. And with regards to how their mental well-being has stood up during this time, um, how have you found it as a business leader managing that? Because it's obviously difficult safeguarding um, of course that of everybody um, around you whilst also making sure that you take a little bit of a step back yourself when you need especially when you're managing a crisis like this yeah I think this, I think the big thing was was as far as the mental well-being was concerned I think the, their initial thought was um, when we told them all well I'm sorry as of today you're going to be furloughed and there's no need to come in uh, the next day Um I think their initial reaction was, "What's going to happen now for us in the in the future?" Uh, and but I think initially, beginning of the middle of March when it happened, most people thought that perhaps by the end of Easter, certainly by the beginning of May, we might be at, we might be coming out of it. And when that didn't happen, we've tried to keep in contact with with every member of staff. We've tried to keep them informed, and we've also asked them, "Is there any is?" Is there any way that we can help them? And in some cases, it's been a situation where they've been saying, we want to come in and help you, uh, but we understand the situation. We were also very conscious that when we, if by, by having the, the, one, the one advantage we did, I felt we did have is the situation during the first couple of months. If the two members of staff that were, uh, that were in the office and the stores had called COVID, they could have gone off on furlough and we could have brought two, mem- two other members of staff in. So they were always willing, 
waiting for that phone call. As it happened, luckily, it didn't happen. Because, you know, as luck would have it, none of us have caught COVID. But they were all aware of that. We've tried to keep abreast. Do they have Do they have any uh, issues? And uh, I think if it had carried on much longer, there was, well, there was one member of staff who was a bit concerned because he was the last one to come in. Uh, but at the end of the day, he... He when when he came in, he came in a different person uh, for the better uh, for the business. Uh, so we tried to keep on top of any mental issues that they've had. The big issue that the big problem I felt was that the two members of staff that worked in, in permanently in the the office and the stores basically worked three months from seven in the morning until five thirty at night virtually no breaks and I saw that after three months and I said to them look you've got to have three weeks two or three weeks off work and they they actually went off work and we brought two of the other members of staff in to give to give them a break because ironically it was the mental state of the two people working non-stop that were causing me more mm. uh, concern than it was the ones that were at home and it is important um, to be able to detect when that happens. And um, th- that's the challenge of sort of the remote working side of things during this time, isn't it? Sometimes nothing, yeah, can, very much so. nothing can replicate the, uh, the face-to-face contact and it can be difficult sometimes to miss signs. So when we're having these discussions about um, what the future of our working practices is going to look like, as good as remote working can perhaps be for a work-life balance, there are just as many arguments for the inverse of keeping workplaces up and running and making sure business do still have a premises of their own where people can get together? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I think one of the big problems when people were working from home was the fact, or the, was the fact that they they have no other contact in the day except mm. themselves. Whereas when you're at work, I mean, I might go to work in the morning and uh, start off doing some work, and then talking to one of one one of the other members of staff. And it may be about a fo- about football at the weekend or cricket or what what sport was going on. And you have a two or three minute break where you switch off and you just talk about something outside business. And then you can immediately, then you switch back on and get back onto your business work. When everyone was working, the two people working flat out didn't get that opportunity to talk to each other because they were having to work nonstop. And the people at home will have the same problem because they have no one in the house to talk to. Um, uh, and all they're doing is work, 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 work. And having that break um, just to socialise, just for a few minutes to talk about the football at the weekend or to talk about uh, politics or to talk about anything just breaks the monotony, not the monotony, but the the everyday to day running of, of trying to run a business. And it just gives you that, that just sitting and having a cup of coffee with someone um, uh, just for five minutes just gives you that break and switches you off. And that's what I found with the two people, especially who were in, who were in the, 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 the building every day for three months, was that they had none of that. And I sensed when I spoke to them uh, at home in the evening that certainly after two to three months, they were getting to the stage where if they had carried on, I think they'd have both 
being ill um, because of the, the pressure. They had, they had no, they had no, they had no way of releasing um, the tension that they were working under. Mm. And by getting, and then when they had their holiday and they came back, they were different people again because they'd had uh, they'd had a holiday. One of them actually managed to make it to Spain and back before uh, after after the relaxation of going to Spain and he he came back about three days before the lockdown from Spain so he he, he actually got a two week holiday in Spain um, and that did him a power of good I can certainly imagine so and it is something that we do have to really uh, keep in mind over the uh, the next uh, few weeks and months safeguarding our own mental well-being and not stretching ourselves too much and that does go for leaders of businesses as well because it can be easy to forget that you do sometimes have to take a step back yourself when you are the one running the show. Yeah, very much so. Mm. And thinking you about know, yeah yeah carry on. I know I was going to say one of the things that I do think was good was when they were able to get sport back onto television, mm. uh, uh, football, and then cricket. And I know there was no spectators, but you could sit and watch your football team play, or your cricket team play, or watch England play. And I just felt that that itself was a, had a major influence on people's well-being because as long because certainly after the first three months, you've basically ex- there's nothing on television to watch because it was all repeats. Um, because they they couldn't produce anything new, the only thing that and 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 you've run out of what you wanted to watch. The sport, I think, gave us a big uh, indication of how a well-being to get this country back up and uh, and more focused on uh, on on getting uh, get getting their mental state back to some sort of normality. You're absolutely right um, in what you're saying there, Derek. And I think even though, of course, the return of supporters into Sports Stadia is um, put on hold at the moment, um, it is a priority for the government, I think, to keep live sport being played even behind closed doors because of that impact. And hopefully that is something that we still get to see over the uh, the next few months as well, for sure. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And thinking about the uh, the next 12 months now, just before we do wrap things up on the programme, um, I would like to talk about your business and just where you'd like that to be in a year's time because we know we've got some real challenges to overcome in continuing to get to grips with the new normal and seeing out the winter. But there may be a ray of hope by the spring. We may have a vaccine, we might not. But in an ideal world, what is it that you really want to achieve in the next 12 months, come what may? I think the, I think the important thing now is for us to be able to get through the next six, six months and get to the spring of next year, whether we've got a vaccine or whether we haven't. Uh, and being able then to take each, split next next year into sort of three quarters, um, uh, sorry, three thirds, four months blocks, um, and take the first four months of next year and say, if, if, if we are breaking even at the end of those four months, I'll be more than happy. The next four months, try to make a small profit and then the last four months seeing whether we can have a concerted effort to get the business back up to where it was running uh, 12 months, uh, 18 months, well, six months ago uh, um, before COVID happened. And of course, on top of this, we've got the Brexit talks to do with mm. uh, trade. We trade quite a bit from uh, from the continent and we are con- about free trade and being able, you know, are, have we got 
to put more money away to pay for VAT on goods coming into into England from Europe? Uh, is there going to be a duty? Is there going to be more expense? But I think at the moment, that's been, from my point of view, I've sort of put that on back boiler and sort of think to myself, I'll cross that bridge when we come to it in January. Um, the important thing now, get over the next two or three months, move into the new year, and then start to slowly look at progressing the company to try to get back to the level we were at the beginning of 2020. Mm, yeah, certainly. You, may, you raise a valid point there that Brexit is another challenge which will be on the horizon for several businesses. And just for the um, the benefit of the listeners tuning in, we are recording on the 16th of October 2020. Um, so uh, the, um, the Prime Minister has said today that trade talks with the EU will continue, but we should nevertheless prepare for an ODL scenario just because of the state that they are in at this point in time. So it's going to be an interesting time for business. It's going to be a very challenging time as it balances the two-pronged threat of COVID and indeed whatever shape Brexit is going to be. But I think all we can really do, can we, Derek, is just stay positive at this point in time because positivity yeah, is very infectious. Much so. Very much so. I think the big problem at the moment, and a lot of people are saying this to me, they switch on the news and then they switch the news off because mm. uh, it's so depressing. And uh, everything is this. I mean, you know, when they talk about the number of people who've got covid number of people who got COVID is bound to be higher because they're testing 300,000 people uh, as against 25,000 in, 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 in March. Mm. And, I, and I just think at the moment we get bogged down with these figures and I think if, you, if you're sensible, do, do roughly what the government is trying to make you do and, and come out and, and, and don't be silly. Uh, at the end, but, but it would be so nice if we could have some good news put on the news programs to say this this is this is what's happening uh, jobs are being created here or jobs are being created there instead of the doom and gloom of saying you know thousands of people are losing their jobs or this which they are and i accept that but at the end of the day we've got to be looking at where are are the jobs being created and if there are being created Let's put it on the news. Let's tell people that whoever it may be is looking to increase their their um, employment levels. I think we do certainly need a good dose of morale at the moment and let us hope that we do start to actually get some of that. Um, it may well be um, later rather than sooner that we see it because it is going to be a tricky few weeks and months ahead as we get into the winter months. Um, but, yeah, never, but nevertheless, despite that outlook, Derek, I have to say it's been a real dose of positivity for myself having you join us on the uh, the programme today and I have well, thoroughly you. enjoyed your company. And it's a shame that we don't have more time because I'm sure we could go on long into the evening. But um, just considering how enlightening it's been welcoming you onto the show I think it would be fantastic to catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on just to see how yeah it'd be lovely yeah thank you which I would very much like to do that I'd welcome that as well Derek I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the air with us and do take care as well and stay safe with everything still going on in the meantime also
Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That also goes for all of our listeners tuning into the podcast today as well. Please do stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others, most importantly, because it makes such a key difference in saving lives. Um, it was a pleasure for me to welcome Derek Timms, director at DT Seals, onto today's programme. Um, coming up next on the show today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Now, Sir Andrew, during his playing days, joined an illustrious club of three England cricket captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, he spent a period of time as director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and has become a champion for charitable concerns and mental health causes. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan Radish the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew, and that will be coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname, ah. it was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was waiting patiently in the wings Mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, 
it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, 
it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, 
being looked up to, what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself... Um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you, mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in twenty fifteen, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach. Was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on and yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move at times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I, was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know, Eva, when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become 
avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and an incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, and you in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary numbers yeah i mean in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, 
Uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I will I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers.
This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.